Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, Ezra chapter 10. Well, as we enter the home stretch in our study of Ezra, we find ourselves neck deep in principles and in applications that surprisingly transfer from Ezra's era to our own in a near seamless way. Now, one application that I'd like to present to you in regard to Ezra's attempt to return his people, the Jews, to the purer ways of observing the Torah commandments and worshiping God instead of following the relatively new man-made traditions uh, contrived up in Babylon is this. While he sought a return to the law of Moses, he did not seek to return Jewish society to the days of Moses. His intent and his challenge was to bring the divine principles of the Torah into the contemporary society of Judah in which he lived, which they lived, and then apply them to his modern circumstances guided by the spirit of the law. And this indeed is also my goal. And if I can be so bold... I think it ought to be the goal of Christ's Ecclesia, His church, worldwide, without exception. But of course, Seed of Abraham is hardly the first to express such a thing. Now occasionally we will hear of Christian and Messianic groups who have the fervent hope of rediscovering and living out the obedient ways of the Bible. However, they feel like this must necessarily involve turning our backs on modern technology, on medicine, on infrastructure, clothing, and instead look and behave like we've just stepped out of the movie set of the Ten Commandments being led by Charlton Heston. But sending society back in time is not only impossible, it's unnecessary. Perhaps the single most amazing quality of the Bible, including the Torah, is that its laws and principles are never changing. They're applicable to constantly evolving societies and they are adaptable to life under virtually all government systems that man can devise. From the tribal system to monarchies, from democracy to socialism, even to dictatorships and communism, the divine principles of the Torah law are transferable. However, most of the academic world, much of Christianity, sees especially what we find in the Old Testament as so primitive, so ancient, sometimes even offensive, as to have no place in our modern lives. So, since God's laws reside there, they're declared irrelevant, if not null and void, for followers of Yeshua. Allow me to share with you a 21st century parable. As an illustration of this topic, 
one that I've personally experienced and its lesson has had a profound effect on my viewpoint. Several years ago, an acquaintance of mine, a brilliant and highly educated lady, was working for the UN. And she was asked to find a way to help third world countries to develop by building industries to manufacture goods to sell. Now the issue she was immediately faced with was that while many of these countries already had some low-level manufacturing capability, the needed laborers to fill the jobs, and had been producing some sellable products, the poverty of their nation meant there was little to no local market for the things that they produced. So who might buy what they made? Their only salvation then was to market their products to the much more wealthy Western nations. And this had been regularly tried, but usually wound up in failure. Why? My acquaintance investigated and found that the overriding failure point was that Western businesses ultimately couldn't do business with these third world companies because in the long run they couldn't trust or rely on them to do what they said they do or even to operate in an honest manner profit was impossible there was little work ethic almost no quality ethic bribery, stealing, embezzlement was rampant if not a given Thus, well-meaning Western businesses would try, but they'd end up wasting millions of dollars before they simply gave up. Now, my friend believed that she had come to understand the core problem. So she wrote a doctoral thesis on the matter, and before she presented it to her mentor, then to the UN, she brought it to me. Because along the way, she had discussed some of her theories with me, and because once I had told her of a similar experience I had had in my corporate career days and working with a high-tech company in a particular South American country which I shall not name. And that experience is best characterized by an eye-opening meeting that I had with the manufacturing vice president of this company when after months and months of failing to produce a viable product of sufficient quality and consistency to sell in the USA, we had a come to Jesus meeting. I was exasperated with promise after promise of getting things fixed only to have nothing happen. I had set up distribution in the USA based on samples and a promise of delivery that never seemed to come. I couldn't hold that network together any longer without products. Finally, I said to this manufacturing VP, I said, listen, I know that you're a good and a capable man. We have agreed time after time to exactly what you would do. You said it was no problem and you haven't followed through with any of it. I don't understand this. I've operated on the basis of a deal is a deal and I've been left looking foolish. 
He responded, he didn't understand what I meant by a deal is a deal. And since I was dealing with a non-English speaking culture, I figured it was only a matter of semantics. He didn't understand the expression. So I explained it. That the idea is that we sit down in good faith, we come to a mutually acceptable agreement, then each side is morally and ethically obligated to make it happen. He said no such concept existed in his society. Rather, it was that A, an agreement at a meeting was always reached because it was the polite thing to do. And that trumped everything. And B, no agreement is really ever an agreement in principle. Agreements are merely gracious conversations held as a means to begin to do business and then a contest gets underway to see who can be the most clever to get all he can from the deal without with necessarily defeating the other party. Thus, all agreements are but contests of cunning, if not outright deceit. I've seen a lot of heads bobbing up and down. Dealt with this before. But these qualities... Well, they're seen as good, normal, and admirable in his country. And while he didn't say so, because he didn't have to, in his eyes, he was winning, hands down. Well, very shortly, the business relationship was terminated because I knew at that moment there was no hope of ever making it work. So what was the real issue at play here? It was one that my acquaintance also understood was the major roadblock for other third world countries. There is no standard business business ethic or morality at work in the third world as is generally understood and unspoken among the western nations. Thus, doing business between the Western and the Third World is made supremely difficult and usually not even worth the trouble. So in her report, she realized that she had to create from scratch a workable, understandable, adaptable, if not universal, system business ethic and morality standards that could be sanctioned by the UN and then taught to these third world nations so that business could be consummated between them and the western world. So for well over a year this brilliant woman worked on it. She talked to academics at Oxford where she was associated. She brainstormed with executives of well-known companies and every time she thought she was making progress on a progressive new world 21st century ethics model she found exceptions to the rule, contradictions principles that simply wouldn't work consistently enough in every situation, in every culture in order for it to be viable finally in desperation being a Christian and an international lawyer, she picked up a Bible. And there it was. The 
law of Moses. The perfect, universally adaptable business ethics model she'd been seeking. You see, what even the secular Western societies have forgotten is that our underlying structure of our businesses, of our social ethic, the utilization of which we take for granted is Judeo-Christian in its source. Lying or stealing in business is just as bad in atheist Denmark as it is in still Christian America. Breaking an oral promise or a written contract is as unacceptable in Spain as it is in Germany. And the laws of our Western societies and especially of our business community are based on God's basic laws. Even if we have turned other facets of Judeo-Christianity morality, especially concerning sexuality as of late, on its head. Now, even though this new business ethic model that she discovered could, of course, not be presented to the UN or any third world country as essentially the law of Moses from the Bible, and it couldn't even be admitted in her thesis, in fact, there is no other adaptable, transferable, perfect system of morality and ethics and existence on this planet other than the 3,500-year-old law of Moses as given to the ancient Hebrews on Mount Sinai. And try as she might, with some of the best minds in the world contributing, she she could not come up with another more modern one that was seamless and that could work in every nation and culture. So to all Christians I say this, it was the error of the ages and it draws on ingrained human hubris and arrogance to think that we can pronounce God's laws and commandments as good for primitive people of times past but no longer relevant or applicable for us. I'm talking now especially to Messianic and to Hebrew roots believers whose eyes and ears have been opened. We absolutely can and must rediscover our faith ethic that is essentially wrapped up in obedience to our matchless God by means of obedience to His perfect Torah laws and all of His divine word. And it doesn't matter where we might reside on this planet. And however a primitive or a technologically advanced society we might find ourselves, or even under what kind of government system. But in doing so, we don't have to take on a fool's errand of donning flat leather sandals, scratchy burlap robes, living in tents without electricity, raising goats out in the desert, or refusing modern medical care in order to achieve the kind of godliness and righteousness that the first generation of Christ's disciples had. And my apologies to you goat herders out there. (laughs) 
we can go on living in the 21st century and enjoy most of its benefits, endure its headaches. The thing we must not do is to separate ourselves from God's Torah principles and then try to rely on easier and more acceptable man-made doctrines and religious philosophies. Otherwise, we find ourselves in the confusing places and dead-end streets that any man-made system of ethics and morals eventually leads us to. Just as my friend found out as she attempted to create one of her own design in hopes of helping some of this planet's most downtrodden and desperate humanity. And it doesn't matter whether a secular government or church leadership tries to invent an alternative system. Only God's laws and commandments are universal and timeless. Well, in Ezra's day, he lived about 900 years after the law was first given. And as such, there was no resemblance to Jewish society in his day as compared to Hebrew society as the time, at the time of the exodus from Egypt. And he came back from Babylon to a homeland that was changed in so many ways from, from even the one his great-grandfather had been exiled 130 or more years earlier. Technology had advanced. The society was far more ethnically diverse in the land. Aramaic was becoming the dominant language of the province. And no doubt, everyday clothing and grooming styles had morphed due to foreign influences and modern trends. There were circumstances of modern Judah that didn't necessarily allow for a precise following of some Torah commandments to the letter. In fact, there were some circumstances that were barely, if at all, even contemplated by the Torah. And so one couldn't merely thumb through the scriptures like an encyclopedia and find a ready-made answer to every situation that arose. Thus it became necessary to rediscover and relearn the Torah so thoroughly that the principles of the law could be applied to new situations as they arose. Ezra was the one who loved the Torah so much that he made understanding not merely the letter, but the divine principles and the spirit of its laws and commands, his lifetime vocation and his passion. That doesn't mean that he could expect smooth sailing ahead. Or that applying it would just be straightforward. Or that everyone would even agree with it. In fact, certain ethics and morals that described this Jewish society of returned exiles were in direct opposition to God's Torah principles. And Ezra knew that something had to be done about this. The one issue that currently had Ezra's attention concerned mixed marriage unions between Jews and pagan foreigners that the Lord said he found abominable 
therefore unacceptable in his sight. With that, open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1129. 1129, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Ezra chapter 10. We're going to read it all. While Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrated before the house of God, a huge crowd of of Israel's men, women, and children gathered around him. People were weeping bitterly. Shekinah, the son of Yechiel, one of the descendants of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have acted treacherously towards our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples of the land. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. We should make a covenant with our God to send away all of these wives along with their children in obedience to the advice of Adonai and of all those who tremble at the mitzvah of the command of our God. Let us act in accordance with the Torah. Stand up, do your duty, for we're with you. Take courage and do it. Ezra stood up and he made the chief Kohanim, the high priest, the Levites and all Israel swear that they would act in according what would be act according to what had been said and they took the oath and Ezra then left his place in front of the house of God and he went to the room of Yochanan the son of Eliashiv and going after going there he neither ate food nor drank water because he was mourning over the treachery of these exiles a proclamation was issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles were to assemble in Jerusalem and that whoever didn't come within three days in answer to the summons from the officials and leaders would forfeit all he owned and be banished from the community of the exiles. All the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled in Jerusalem within the three days. It was the twentieth day of the ninth month. All the people sat in the open place in front of the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Ezra the Cohen stood up and addressed them. You have acted treacherously by marrying foreign women and thus have increased Israel's guilt. Now therefore make confession to Adonai, the God of your ancestors, and do what will please him by separating yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign women. In response, the whole assembly cried aloud, Yes, our duty is to do as you have said. But there are many people. It's the rainy season. We can't stand out here in the open. Also, it isn't the work of a day or two, for there are many of us who have committed this crime. Let our leaders represent the whole community and let all those in our cities who have married foreign women appear at prearranged times accompanied by the elders and judges of each city until our God's fierce anger over this has been turned away from us. Only Yonatan, the son of Asael, and Yahaziah, the son of uh, Tikva, supported by Meshulam and Shabtai, the Levite, opposed this. The exiles did as agreed. Ezra the priest chose heads of father's clans by name and they began their sessions to look into the matter on the first day of the tenth month. They finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women by the first day of the first month. 
And among the priests were found these who had married foreign women. Of the sons of Yeshua, the son of Yosadak and his brothers, Maaseiah, Eliezer, Yariv, and Gedaliah. They promised that they would send their wives away. And since they were guilty, they offered a ram from the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Emer, Hanani, Zebediah, of the sons of Harim, Maaseiah, Eliah, Shmeiah, Yechiel, and Uziah. Of the sons of Pashchur, Elio, Enai, Maaseiah, Ishmael, Nataniel, Yozavad, and El Asa. Of the Levites, Yozavad, Shemi, Keliah, Petachiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the singers, Eliashiv. Of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. Of Israel, of the descendants of Parosh, Yamyah, Yiziah, Malkiah, Miamim, Eleazar, Malkiah, Beniah. Of the descendants of Elam, Matanyah, Zechariah, Yechiel, Avdi, Yeramot, and Eliah. Of the descendants of Zatu, Elioanai, Eliashiv, Matanyah, Yeramot, Zavad, and Azizah. Of the descendants of Bavai, Yochnan, Hanayah, Zabai, and Atlai. Of the descendants of Bani, Meshulam, Maluch, Adiyah, Yashuv, Sha'al, and Ramot. Of the descendants of Pachat Moab, Adiyah, Kalal, Baniyah, Maseyah, Matanyah, Betzatzel, Benui, and Manesha. Of the descendants of Harim, Eliezer, Yishiyah, Malkiah, Shmaiah, Shimon, Benyamin, Maluch, and Shmariah. Of the descendants of Hashum, Matnai, Matriah, Zavad, Eliphalet, Yeremai, Manesha, and Shemi of the descendants of Benai, Mariai, Amram, Uel, Benyah, Bedyah, Keliuhu, Vanyah, Memrot, Elishiv, Matanyah, Matnai, Yasai, Bani, Binui, Shimi, Shalemiah, Natan, Adiyah, Makanavdi, Shashi, Sharai, Azariel, Shalemiah, Shmariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Yosef, and of the descendants of Nevo. Yael, Matiah, Zavad, Zivina, Yadai, Yoel, and Beniah. All of these had taken foreign wives. Some of them had wives by whom they had had, had children. And no, I'm not going to repeat that. <laughs> the first words of chapter 10 are actually in time reference to the opening verses of chapter 9. That is, in chapter 9, when Ezra was informed of the mixed marriage debacle, he immediately went to the temple, sat in the courtyard, tore his garments, and publicly mourned. So then he prayed his marvelous prayer of confession, whereby he indicated himself, right along with all the other Jews, in Judah as guilty as a collective body even if many, probably most individuals hadn't committed this particular sin 
So chapter 10 opens by explaining that while he was grieving and he was making prayerful confession, a huge crowd gathered because of the sight of their leader loudly praying and wailing. The crowd consisted of men, women, and children, every level of Jewish society. And because it was and remains the Middle Eastern customary way to make very public displays of emotion, then others are drawn to see what is the matter so that they can commiserate. Well, out of the crowd emerged Shekinah, and he came up to Ezra. This man was a descendant of the family of Elam, as listed in Ezra 2.7. They were part of the first wave of Jews to return to Judah, as led by Zerubbabel around 538 B.C., or about 80 years before Ezra's return. He was obviously a leader of some sort. However, he's not given any official position. He goes on, he confesses, that indeed Ezra's right. We have acted treacherously towards our God in marrying these foreign women. Now let me immediately point out that it appears that like Ezra, Shekinah was declaring guilt by association even though he wasn't himself guilty of marrying a foreign uh, a foreign pagan wife. Now the reason this seems so is that beginning in verse 18 we got that extensive list of all who were found to have been guilty of this sin, he's not listed in it. Now there's a lot of dispute among scholars whether or not this is meant to be a complete or only representative list of the guilty. However, since he's a Jew and he's part of the community of returned exiles, then by some being guilty, all are guilty from a collective judgment standpoint. He begins by essentially repeating what Ezra confessed. But whereas Ezra more or less left the situation as hopeless, because what's done is done, and he sees no reason why this time, Jehovah won't just go ahead and do away with this stiff-necked remnant. Shekinah says that even though the sin is very serious, there is still hope for the Jewish people. Now, although he doesn't say why he feels this way, no doubt it's because he knows that God is a merciful God. Because of what he did in severely punishing his people with exile for their rebellion, but in allowing a remnant to return to their homeland and relative safety and freedom. So the Lord's attribute of loving kindness, chesed, is self-evident. And thus, hope remains for the Jewish community of not being destroyed by this latest trespass. That's the easy part of verse 2. It gets a little complex after this. Because next it says that the treachery being referred to is that the Jews married foreign women from peoples of the land. Now let's take a look at this closely because it's pretty instructional. The Hebrew expression that is usually translated into English as marrying in this verse is a very little used word. And we find it only here and in the 13th chapter of Nehemiah. The word is yeshav. And it doesn't so much mean to marry as it does 
cause to dwell or to give a home to. Now there's several Hebrew words used to indicate marriage unions, such as Ya'ad, Lakak, uh, Yavam, and Natan. They all give slightly different aspects of marriage, such as betrothal or leveret marriage or the father giving his daughter, a man taking a girl as a wife, and so on. But yeshav is used only in relation to a mixed or better illicit union. In fact, there is reasonable doubt that from the viewpoint of the author, Ezra, whether in this context we really ought to even use the term marriage to translate it. Further, in this same verse, the Hebrew expression for the kind of woman who's come into union with this Jewish man is nokri, meaning a foreigner who has no association with Israel. A foreigner in every respect. Thus what we find in Proverbs, for example, is that when a Hebrew man takes a nochri for a wife, she's seen as a harlot. Thus the entire structure of the statement of verse 2 has this tone of saying that the terms marriage and wife probably aren't even appropriate. This wasn't a true marriage union any more than hiring the services of a prostitute constitutes marriage because consummation is necessary to complete a marriage union from God's perspective. Now whether what we're reading here is the view of the author, Ezra, who might be intentionally using very disparaging words to highlight his disgust at these unions, or whether it's God's view that while the Jews and foreign women may have, been, may have considered themselves as married, he didn't, I don't know which is which here. But the significance is that these are highly questionable unions, illegitimate, absolutely, from God's perspective, for any number of reasons. And so it does leave the door open to not necessarily considering the coming dissolution of these unions as actual divorce. And we'll discuss that shortly. Now let me make one more relevant point and we'll move on. In looking at these several popular commentaries that are available today about this chapter, almost all of them eventually devolve into embarrassed apologies for Ezra's decision to terminate these marriages and even for God's decision to declare that no marriages to people from this short list of nations that we found back in Ezra 9.1 is to occur. And the reason for their apologies is that they see what's happening here as blatant racism. And the reason that they do this is because this is what happens when we try to view any part of the Bible through the lens of modern culture especially 20th and 21st century Western Gentile culture, or when we think 
that we can put ourselves on the same level as God Almighty and therefore we have the right to challenge and question the Lord's laws and commandments or even to decide that the Bible might only even really be a collection of ancient Jewish folklore. And the existence of God is more a product of myth than reality. For some reason, it seems to escape even the finest of Bible academics that especially in the early biblical times of the Old Testament, ethnicity and religion overlapped. Nations were defined as nations based first on the God they worshipped. Second, on their territorial boundaries. Next in line came the king who ruled over them. Then their language, then perhaps certain physical features of the people that made them distinct, such as skin color, shape of eyes, hair characteristics, traditional clothing, things of that nature. So from the biblical standpoint, it's assumed that every ethnic group, race, and nation had its own unique God. And it's only the descendants of Jacob, called Hebrews, Israelites, who formed the nations of Israel and Judah, whose God was Jehovah. Thus, from the spiritual point of view, the issue of the Hebrews marrying foreigners and specifying them by race or by nation assumed their allegiance to their particular national or ethnic God. Thus a Nohri, a foreigner, by definition, worshipped a false god. On the other hand, it was always possible for them to sincerely renounce their own god, which by definition renounced allegiance to their nation, then to marry a Hebrew, declare allegiance to Yahweh and to Israel, and now that person was an Israelite and a Hebrew. By switching gods, they switch nations. It is only in later times, long after even the New Testament Bible era, where race, nationality, and religion became disconnected such that we can think in terms of race and racism like we do today in the West, where there's no automatic connection to a religion. There is no racism of that kind in the Bible. It doesn't exist. All these commentators are achieving, and their apologies is to inoculate themselves by means of modern political correctness so that they can remain accepted in their circle of academic peers. Now I know that sounds a bit harsh, but I assure you this is precisely the case. So once again, the women in this marriage issue that we're studying have come into union with Hebrew men, but the women stayed loyal to the God of the nation or ethnic group they were originally from. And for the God of Israel, that just isn't kosher. Now in contrast to Ezra, Shekinah has a plan to to, to remedy this situation. 
the people should make a covenant with God to dissolve these unions with these foreign women and that the women and the children they bore should be sent away. Now before we go any further, I want to emphasize this point. It wasn't Ezra who came up with this idea. It wasn't Ezra who ordered divorces. It was Shekinah who suggested it. And in a rather democratic process, the Jewish people who were present voiced agreement. They voted for it. As with the subject matter of verse 2, this suggestion and then the agreement of the people in verse 3 has a lot more to it than meets the eye. First, to finish this verse, it says that this plan to rescue the Jews from their predicament comes from the advice of their Lord. Look at your Bibles. Or in the complete Jewish Bible it says Adonai. And that this would be in compliance with the commandments of the Torah. It has been noted by long past Christian scholars and Jewish sages that when this speaks of making a covenant with God, this is essentially a covenant renewal ceremony. Now we've seen this a number of times to this point in the Old Testament. And not only is there nothing wrong with that concept, it is no doubt the proper thing to do in God's eyes. The concept is that the Hebrew people have veered so far away from the Torah and their beliefs, their lifestyles, their worship practice, practices and their observances, which while God has remained faithful in His part of keeping covenant, the Hebrews have not. So the only right thing to do is to renew the covenant, meaning the Mosaic covenant, which by definition means to turn away from all the practices of lifestyle and worship that not, have not been in accordance with the Torah law and its principles. To be clear, a new covenant of some sort is not being contemplated. It's a renewal of the existing covenant. It's not at all uncommon among modern day believers to want to be rebaptized when we have gone far astray. And we want to renew our covenant with God. Many Christian leaders and lay people question whether a rebaptism is ever appropriate. And I, while I wouldn't say it always is, under the kind of circumstance just described in Ezra, I personally find it as not only appropriate but necessary. That doesn't mean that every time we sin or we suddenly feel guilty or especially close to the Lord even that we should be rebaptized because then I see those purposes as cheapening its value. However, if we've gone far astray for an extended time, perhaps we've come out of a denomination or individual congregation and we realized that what we had believed and practiced was not in accord with the Holy Scriptures, then it's certainly good and appropriate to be rebaptized as a public and personal expression of allegiance to God and to His Word. And by definition, it is also a public and personal renouncing of our former ways. This is essentially what Shekinah is proposing. He says that doing this on the advice of the Lord and of those who are in proper fear and awe of the commandments of God is the right thing to do. The complete Jewish Bible says Adonai. 
Most English versions say the Lord. Capital the T, capital L, the Lord. Gave Shekinah this so-called advice. In other words, that God told him to do this. However, other versions, like the com- complete, uh, sorry, King James Version, don't say the Lord. They say my Lord, little m, little l, my Lord. Meaning that a human being told them this. And in our context, that human being can only be Ezra. Which is correct. Why the difference? It's quite simple. In Hebrew, the word for the Lord is Adonai. And it can mean either God or it can mean a human Lord or Master. So how can we tell the difference? First is the context. But second is how the word is actually vocalized. Adonai is spelled Aleph Dalet Nun Yud. And as those who have studied a little Hebrew know, it's an alphabet of consonants. It has no vowels. One has to know by memory the vowel sounds to make. So by way of example, if in the English alphabet you take the consonants T and N by adding different vowel sounds between those letters, you get different words which sound, of course, differently when we speak them. So they have different meanings. Add an A, you get tan. Add E, you get tin. Add O, you get ton. So on and so forth. Thus, depending on what vowel sounds you add to Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, you get a different word that has a different meaning. So if you add the vowels A and I at the end of those letters, you get Adonai. That's referring to God. But if you add the vowel I alone, the vowel sound, you get Adonai. That's referring to a human lord or master. He's Adonai. Any human lord or master is Adonai. You with me? But biblical Hebrew doesn't give us the vowel sounds. So at times how to pronounce the words ambiguous, therefore the exact meaning can be ambiguous. However, here I think the context is self-evident. That the word is Adonai, not Adonai, thus referring to a human Lord and not the divine God. And that Lord is Ezra, and those who tremble at God's commandments are mostly the priests and Levites who came to Judah with Ezra. They were already Torah followers as a result of Ezra's teaching back home. So it's key that we grasp that God himself did not tell Shekinah to suggest mass divorce. However, it's equally obvious that Ezra and his cohorts did make an unmistakable implication of, but did not directly order it, that divorce from these pagan women was the only possible solution to this. Now it gets even more interesting. Almost all English versions that I checked 
do not say that the men were to divorce their wives. But yours doesn't either. Rather, it says they're to put away or send away their wives along with their children. The Hebrew word being translated is yetzah. Yetzah. And it indeed doesn't mean a formal divorce. See, in Hebrew, there are two other words that directly mean divorce. Shalach and kertut. Kertut. And certainly, if you divorce a woman, you're sending her away. But you could also send away, you could yetzah, a disobedient son. Or a no longer wanted concubine. Or a slave. None of those involves divorce from a marriage union. So what we see from this is that the book of Ezra puts a very different light on the disillusions of these unions with foreign women and it doesn't really classify them as true marriages in the first place and so also not as divorce in the second place. Now I acknowledge this might seem to be slicing the onion a bit too thin to arrive at a certain conclusion but I don't think so. I believe that the context and the precise Hebrew words bears this out but it's obscured by our English translations and by our not understanding ancient Hebrew and Middle Eastern culture. And further, it is important to recognize that divorce is discussed in the Law of Moses. And while it's not encouraged, there are allowances made for it. But there are very strict rules and boundaries about it. Here in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, we read this. Suppose a man marries a woman and consummates the marriage, but later finds her displeasing because he has found her offensive in some respect. He writes her a divorce document, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house. She leaves his house, goes and becomes another man's wife. But the second husband dislikes her and writes her a get, a divorce document, and gives it to her and sends her away from his house. Or the second husband whom she married dies. In such a case, her first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again as his wife, because now she's defiled. It would be detestable to Adonai, you're not to bring, and you are not to bring, sin in the land of Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance. Interestingly, here's what the Apostle Paul says about the same subject. We're going to talk a lot about this next week. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 17. To those who are married, I have a command. It's not from me, it's from the Lord. A woman is not to separate herself from her husband, but if she does separate herself, she is to remain single or to be reconciled with her husband. Also, a husband is not to leave his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer, and she is satisfied to go on living with him, he should not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband who is satisfied to go on living with her, she's not to leave him. For the unbelieving husband has been set aside by God for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been set aside for God by the brother. 
Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're set aside for God. But if the unbelieving spouse separates himself, let him be separated. In circumstances like these, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to a life of peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person live the life the Lord has assigned to him and live it in the condition he was in when God called him. This is the rule that I lay down in all congregations. We're not going to get into a big discussion of divorce. I just wanted to be honest with you about what's being said in both the New Testament and the Old Testament about this subject. However, notice one thing about Paul's statement that must not be set aside. Again, we're going to talk about this in depth next week. Only verses 10 and 11 are said to be from God. 12 through 17 is Paul's personal advice. And he lays it down as a rule of behavior for all congregations. Literally, it would be all the congregations of Corinth which is where he was. Further, this is why it's so important to know the Torah thoroughly. So that we can delve deeply. We can understand the principles and spirit behind each law and commandment. Because when it comes to divorce, there are only a few cases and conditions covered in the Bible. Very few. And because of different cultures... And the centuries that have passed since these instructions, it is imperative to understand God's mind as best we can to know what to do in marriage situations that have become difficult, perhaps untenable. And by the way, the Ezra situation is not so different from what many encounter today. The only difference is there was no such thing as atheism in Bible times. So when Paul speaks of an unbeliever, he only means someone who's not accepted Yeshua as Messiah. Not somebody who's an atheist. The only question was which God or gods did each marriage partner worship. We'll continue our study of Ezra 10 next week.